You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 99, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Rohan Francis. Dr. Francis is an interventional cardiologist who is doing PhD work in cardiac MRI, which is where our discussion will begin today as we discuss the recent concerns about myocarditis in people who are recovering from COVID, either symptomatically or asymptomatically. This has caused a lot of disruption in sports leagues and university settings with concern about potentially long-lasting heart failure and heart problems with young adults. I suspect you'll find this conversation hopeful and helpful in your conversations with either patients or other people who have concerns about this. I think this will put a lot of them to rest and hopefully help allay some of those concerns people might have. Today's episode is the last episode before episode 100, obviously. It's been quite a journey. Uh, as those of you who have been following the show for a while know that a lot of things have transpired since I began the show. I began this in April of 2018, so clearly I have not done one every week as my plan, but I've been fairly faithful and I've almost managed that. Uh, those of you who are not familiar with the personal issues that I've gone through, I'd recommend you listen to episode 25 where I talk about the death of my son, Andy. He died in August of 2018 in a car accident. Um, it's a tough episode to listen to, but if you want to know what sorts of things I've had to go through and my family, I think it's a good listen. It's very raw, uh, but it's also part of the reason why I haven't been able to keep as faithful to the weekly episodes as I had planned. Uh, for those of you who listen all the way to the end of the show, you may notice that it has a very non-medical ending in that after the theme music, there's a solo for my, my son when he was at the Grand Rapids Choir of Men and Boys singing a Christmas solo in December of 2017. Uh, he was incredibly talented, 
and he was probably the one who gave me the hardest time about the podcast, where he'd always ask me weekly, it seemed, if my show had yet gone viral. <laughs> it's safe to say it hasn't, uh, but I've got a nice niche, and people who listen and share it, and you help make it successful and send me great ideas. And so for that, I'm very thankful and appreciate this opportunity to convey some information and you can learn alongside with me. I would, of course, like to thank, as always, the patrons to the show who help financially offset the cost for the production, the technology that's required, Zoom conferencing, microphones, hosting services, and the like. Uh, if you want to be a part of that, obviously you can do that anytime. I'd appreciate any sort of support you have financially. You can do that at patreon.com slash the paradox. More importantly, if you subscribe to the show, share it with your friends, uh, please feel free to send me messages to me at the paradox show at protonmail.com. Uh, there I use the show ideas. I find people to interview. I've got some interesting interviews coming up in the future. All thanks to basically listeners like you who give me ideas and give me the opportunity to reach out to people I never would have imagined talking to, and then yet they reply, and here they are on the show. So I consider that uh, one of the great benefits of the show, that I've been able to expand my reach, and certainly I've been able to interact with people that I never thought possible. And so I hope you've enjoyed that aspect of the show as much as I have. But with all that being said, we'll just get down to the nuts and bolts of things. Obviously, show notes will be where they usually are, at theparadox.com slash 099. Uh, there you can find links to Dr. Francis' YouTube page, which is called Midlife Crisis. He's also on Twitter. That'll be linked as well. I'd highly recommend you go watch his videos. They're entertaining, informative, which is absolutely why I had him on my show today. But without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Rohan Francis about COVID and myocarditis. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Rohan Francis of Medlife Crisis, a YouTube channel. He's a cardiologist in the UK, London. He's uh, working on his PhD in cardiac MRI, although he's specialized in interventional cardiology. Dr. Francis, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, let's get right into the thick of it, because I had you on, you had a great video that you put out recently on cardiac MRI. And so why don't you briefly talk about cardiac MRI and then how that relates to COVID? Sure. Well, I mean, cardiac MRI is is one of the many tools we've got available to us in cardiology, but I think it's fair to say it's you know it's a pretty specialized test. It um, a typical cardiac MRI scan will take in the region of a half hour to an hour. So we get a lot of information. It's not something we do routinely, but it's a, a very sensitive test, and it's inevitable that you know I think COVID's been such a scrutinized disease that. Um, all of us in our different fields turn the tools that we've got uh, onto it and see if we can come up with any new information or clues about what to do. And um, for the majority of the last few months, I think people have been concentrating on the the sickest patients with COVID, uh, which makes sense. Obviously, that's where all the resources were. But more recently, people have been trying to turn an eye to the future and, and look at, you know, what maybe are going to be the long-term effects of, of COVID. And one of the papers, um, I mean, there have been quite a few using cardiac MRI to image people with COVID, but often those particularly sick patients. So there was one recently, which has gained a lot of coverage around the world, um, which 
to turn the attention onto patients who had recovered from COVID-19. So they were no longer sick and did cardiac MRIs on their hearts. And, and this is, um, I guess, going to form a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And and so I think, you know, this this important, I mean, I think most people are familiar with their MRI. Cardiac MRI specialized looks at the functionality of the of the heart while it's working, which is unusual. I mean, in the sense that most of the MRIs are static images when they were um, initially developed, and this can actually show you the contractility, how much you know is moving through the heart, right? And and so it can, and it can show you the actual tissue so that you can identify with some certainty, I suppose, whether there's inflammation, right? That's the that's the itis of myocarditis that we talk about. Um, so we, we, and we have, we, I, we have to be very careful with our terminology here, I think, because, you know, I've, I've been very loose with it and I, I'm going to try and get better about that. Where for instance, you could be infected with SARS-CoV-2 and not actually have COVID-19 in the sense that you don't exhibit any symptoms of, of disease. And so COVID-19 is actually like, it's sort of like having polio versus having the polio uh, viruses that actually don't cause any disease, you know, cause you don't have. Uh, you may have be vaccinated, so you don't exhibit any symptoms, and so you don't actually have polio, but you may actually have the viruses and can potentially shed them in your, you know, GI tract. So the same could possibly be said with SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And so, um, so when we're talking about this, we're talking about people who actually exhibited symptoms in some level with, of had COVID-19, so they had disease that, where they had some sort of symptoms, and then. I guess the question is, you know, how significant is, are these findings, right? So we can go looking for all sorts of things and find abnormalities, but sometimes abnormalities are actually normal or there's a variant. And so it's hard for us to know in medicine sometimes what is significant, I guess, in fi our findings. That's a lot of sort of, our, I think, how to start beginning framing this discussion. Would you agree? Yes, I think I think there are a few important points there to expand on. Uh, the key one being that you know what defines an abnormality, and um, I think we can often think about this a bit in a bit too much of a binary manner that there's there's normal and there's abnormal. Whereas you know nothing biological really exists like that. There's always going to be a bit of a spectrum, and I think you know if you look uh, with enough different technologies and and modalities, you'll find th things in everyone and some of those things will be classed as definitely abnormal but some fall into a gray area and um the other point i wanted to emphasize in what you just said was was about terminology and i think there's uh, central to this um conversation has been a conflation of two bits of terminology myocarditis which is a clinical syndrome um where, where someone typically has symptoms, uh, which may be in the form of chest pain or palpitation, something like that, in association with some sort of diagnostic test, whether that's a raised inflammatory blood marker or whether it's an abnormality on a cardiac MRI scan. But a lot of the patients that have been discussed, and the results that were found, which I, I'll, I'll summarize in a second, if you like, um, were just something lighting up on an MRI scan without the other associated symptoms of myocarditis, like the raised blood test or, this, or the, uh, the person actually feeling any symptoms. So been, that's been referred to as myocarditis, but I would just suggest that actually it's not clearly cut as myocarditis. That is maybe, right. I think we're, we're mixing up a bit of terminology there as well. Um, would, you, would you like me to sort of just 
briefly summarize what the the paper said please yeah yeah why don't you go into that and and i think it's a great it's a great separation of the myocarditis because this term we as all these things we just throw them around because it's certainly it's the only way you can describe something that you normally would not have known existed right i mean you would know that there was an inflammation that is maybe subclinical or irrelevant uh, but since it's there you say well i guess it's myocarditis even though there's you know it doesn't doesn't mean anything yeah, I mean, I think this is a concept we're familiar with in, in medicine uh, on the whole, but it seems that in this particular topic, we seem to have, I don't know, if thrown a bit of common sense to the wind, or we seem to have forgotten the, the way we think about information we get otherwise. You know, a classic example being the, the C-reactive protein, a, a non-specific blood test of inflammation, which goes up in all kinds of things, acute illness. And sometimes you'll send off the test or another test like a troponin and it'll come back a bit abnormal. And then you kind of scratch your head and and think, well, you know, this patient seems perfectly well to me. Well, let's just repeat <laughs> it in a couple of weeks and then it's normal. And, it, and it's just one of those things. And, you know, probably no cause will ever be found. But as long as your patient's OK, that's that's the kind of main thing. So I think that's a, a similar kind of phenomenon. But this was a, a German study initially. I mean, there have been a, f a few different things that have been published, but this certainly was the one that um, has been at the center of the conversation. And I think it's important to say there was, there was nothing really wrong with the study. It's more to do with how it's been interpreted. There was a, a an error which was quickly corrected, but I think in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's probably not so important to, to dwell on that. But it was a, a look at about 100 people who'd recovered from a clinical syndrome of, of COVID-19. So they were sick and they'd, they'd got better. Um, and that was antibody proven uh, illness. And um, the, the uh, sorry, that, that was RNA proven illness. And the um, they put them in the MRI scanner and found that initially what was reported was 78% had abnormalities, things that we wouldn't expect to see on an, a normal, I'm put, doing inverted commas here, um, <laughs> a normal patient and to that end they had got some normal controls in the study but normal controls aren't uh, you've got to be a bit more specific with what that means so the majority of people who are getting unwell significantly unwell with COVID-19 tend to be those with who are a bit older who've got some uh, potentially some pre-existing medical conditions so if you get a bunch of uh, 25 year olds who are completely healthy as your normal controls and you're comparing those to people who've recovered from COVID-19 who are over the age of 50 on average, then you're not necessarily comparing like for like. And normal controls ordinarily, you know, we do research in universities and, and it often is young fit people. So what they had done is then add another group who are risk factor matched controls who were much more appropriate as people to, to compare to. So they're of a similar kind of demographic, similar medical background, um, but uh, didn't have COVID-19. The, the way that the results were reported was taking all three groups into account. So some of the differences came out strongly significant. But if you ignore those normal controls and just look at the risk factor match controls, in the, the republished data that had some uh, statistical abnormalities uh, corrected, Actually, it doesn't look like there's a significant difference between someone who has had COVID-19 and recovered 
and someone who is of a similar kind of medical background and age, but didn't have COVID-19, they also have these abnormalities on their cardiac MRI tests, but they're more likely, or they are likely to be caused by those other medical problems rather than the COVID-19. Yeah, and I guess this is not surprising. I mean, this is kind of what you'd expect to see. Um, I mean, I guess we don't know enough about the disease, but uh, this kind of goes more broadly into the discussion, I guess, with the media and scientists and the interplay between the two. And it's real easy to jump on the media and say, well, you know, they're scaremongering, which they clearly are. They're, you know, it's clickbait. There's, you know, they're always talking about things. And I would just point out a recent headline we had in the USA Today, which is a paper that I'm not sure anyone actually reads in this country, but their headlines are always, uh, are always in. And one of the, the headline read, three teachers have already died from COVID-19. We've gone back to school here in the United States in the fall. There's a lot of controversy whether the kids should go back to school or whether they shouldn't. And, you know, the teachers have been making a big deal about their, you know, hazard pay or the risk of teaching. And, of course, you read the article and none of the three teachers died contracting it in school, right? I mean, that was the the, the headline assumption is, of course, that teachers are going back to school and they're, you know, dropping like flies as dangerous when, in fact, they got it. One got at a teacher meeting. The other two got it some other time in the summer and died. I mean, it was and, they're, and most of them are teaching virtually anyway. So but I think that that is definitely a problem with the media. Uh, but I think scientists scientists are feeding this as much as the media is reporting it, right? I mean, I think people are pushing out uh, press releases on preprints, things that haven't peer reviewed for um, for their studies, and it's putting a lot of information out there that is very confusing. And in some way, I don't expect the media to be able to sort of sort through this sort of thing. But I think it's uh, I I don't know who I don't know who's responsible, except I think in many ways I think the scientists, research, basically researchers are causing a lot of the problems, maybe unintentionally, but looking for, I don't know, a couple interviews, fame. I mean, normally no one cares about cardiac MRI, right, except cardiologists and radiologists. But now suddenly people care what I say, and so they're going to push this forward to get in the print or, you know, to get published. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that's a, a huge problem. You know, I looked at these stats several weeks ago now, so I'm sure it's it's an order of magnitude more, but there was something like 10,000 papers that had been published about COVID-19. Um, and, for, you know, the, so much of that is just noise and really poor quality, pointless studies and a lot of duplication of, of the same questions. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the case for this particular paper. I, I, I think you know, the, the, the authors didn't make any um, sort of big pronouncement about what they advise should be done uh, with this information. Um, I think it's just something that um, has in just the way we're kind of seizing on anything at the moment. Uh, it, it In this particular context, I think it's, it's a case of maybe, well, I, I mean, it's a bit academic trying to apportion who's who's more at fault between the right, scientists yeah. and the media and i think nobody comes out of this doing very well but th in this particular case i don't have too much problems with the data it's more just we're not i don't believe that the majority of people are l taking a away the right message from this and certainly you know the simplistic uh, summary is that 78 percent of pe people and this is what the, all the, the headlines were kind of suggesting have this long-term heart damage, even when they're feeling completely back to normal. 
and then making wild extrapolations about what the future will hold for these people over the next five, 10, even, you know, I, I saw a scientist the other day predicting about a sort of tidal wave of heart failure coming over the next few decades from COVID-19. And I, I understand, you know, scientists, are, our job is to come up with hypotheses and, and ask questions. But I think there has to be a bit of understanding that at the moment, people are hanging off scientists every word and they're, they're looking for, for answers and aren't necessarily able to discriminate between an academic conversation between people, researchers who are, who are just kind of asking questions. And, and they'll, they'll hear a scientist saying something like that and maybe don't appreciate that this is an opinion. And then it's reported in the media as scientists says, you know, heart failure rates are going to soar because of COVID-19 when, you know, and I, th I think we've got to be very careful making these kind of speculative comments like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it just goes along the lines of, you know, someone says report a scientist. Well, all scientists are not, not the same. Much as, you know, doctor says something, so, you know, such and such. Well, not all doctors are the same. Some people have more inherent knowledge. My opinion on what goes on in cardiac catheterizations is pretty much worthless. Uh, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect anyone to take what I say, except unless I've done some research and talked to a bunch of people. But uh, I can maybe understand things a little bit more when it comes to medicine. I can understand the virus, the, an immunologist talking about viruses, but I'm so far from an expert in this. I'm not an expert in epidemiology. I try and figure it out to try and answer these things. And maybe I'm a little bit uh, better at figuring this out than the average person, just because I have a little more experience and I, we could, we sort of speak the jargon, but um, it, it makes it, I, I don't know if it's just, I'm not even sure where to, where the, where the, where we fix the problem, right? Because I think, you know, you look at uh, when someone puts a study out this like this and people take this information and they make decisions. And I know in one of your videos, I got actually ended up down the YouTube rat hole in your watching video after video of yours. I really enjoy a lot of them and I recommend it to anyone uh, to go to Medlife Crisis, which will be linked in the show notes. But uh, I, f I found um, that it's really hard for people to know which person to listen to. And I don't know who's responsible for making sure that the right people listen to those things. You almost need some sort of some sort of chief aggregator. But we have people like we had sports leagues canceled. And in, in this I'm in the Midwest here in the United States, and it was our football and, well, all fall sports were canceled because of this study. I mean, I think there's, they were all set to go, and then this study happened in three days, sort of hit the media, I should say, and three days later, everything was canceled. Um, so, I mean, I it was a contributing factor, but I, I, I just don't know how you help people know which people to listen to and which things actually matter. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. It's, I think it's a very difficult question. If only everybody had as much insight as, as you do into uh, the limits of your expertise. I think the problem is a lot of people have um, appointed themselves as, as uh, advisors and, and there's no kind of filter on, on what you can find on social media. So you get all kinds of opinions. And I, I fully agree that, um, you know, scientists themselves have been part and parcel of the problem. Um, and uh, that there's um, so you know we've talked about this one particular study but then more recently since the the release of my most recent video which was kind of concentrating on the, the MRI stuff um, there's been a paper looking at um, athletes specifically and um, 
showing that there are uh, abnormalities, and I think it was, I can't remember the exact numbers, but about a, a third had some cardiac MRI, uh, MRI abnormality, but there was no control group. And, you know, so they've just <laughs> taken a bunch of, of athletes at random and uh, who've had COVID and, and just scanned them and, and, and showed us the results. Now, there's a whole discussion on, on Twitter in the kind of ivory tower of uh, cardiac MRI Twitter uh, about whether the images released actually are abnormal. I'll, I'll, I'll put that to one side. But um, without a control group, you know, some, a study like this would just never get published in, in JAMA cardiology normally. So that, for a start, tells you something strange is up. But then a few um, very uh, uh, smart people on, online have been going digging through the literature for the last you know, decade and a half since this technology has existed and found that in athletes, you'll find all kinds of crazy things on their cardiac MRI scans <laughs> because they're elite athletes and they've done strange things to their heart. And, you know, we've seen this in veteran athletes in elite uh, uh, athletes who are a bit younger and you find all kinds of things in fact higher rates than was seen in the in the COVID-19 paper so again you know there's there's, there's a, a an acceptance of a much lower grade of evidence at the moment um, and it all comes down to the fact that there's a lot of fear about this uh, you know disease we still are learning about and so I, I've been very um sort of apprehensive about saying anything too uh, specific about sports in America. But number one, I'm not in America and I don't uh, really <laughs> understand the environment there. But number two, um, you know, I, I would never want to criticize somebody running a, a league who's worried about their athletes. And, and, and as you say yourself, you know, they're not cardiologists. They're going to listen to what they're told and, and what people are advising them. And if they feel that they're a realistic uh, risk, then, you know, fair enough. So, so I, I, uh, I sympathize, but if that truly was the, 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 the main reason, and I've, I've heard kind of conflicting things from different people, then, then that's, that's a shame because I, I, I don't think that is at all sufficient evidence to cancel something like a, a sporting league. And indeed the lead author, you know, in, in a couple of interviews I've, I've seen has himself been surprised by what the implications of, of what was published. Yeah, I think, you know, to to the to the, the normal abnormal variant, you know, it's funny because people are always surprised when I talk to the patients, I talk to them and say, you know, I'm not sure how things will turn out. I mean, things that you'll survive, the, an, the anesthetic. And, but I don't know if you'll have some nausea afterwards or not because everyone's a little bit different. And, and we talk maybe about the surgery some because they all assume I know a lot about surgery because I'm in the room, although I find the surgery boring. But... Um, anyway, uh, and I will say, well, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to know where things are. So sometimes it takes a little bit longer than other times. And they're like, what do you mean? It's they, everyone assumes everybody's exactly the same on the inside, which I find amazing. Um, because you'd be, you'd be, uh, you'd be terrified if you saw someone who looked exactly like you on the outside. Right. <laughs> but, but so no one accepts the fact that there are variants there. And when it comes to like athletes, you said, I mean, we know that athletes have a lower resting heart rate, for instance, I think most people know that now, but a while ago that was not known or it was a surprise to people and they would think people need heart transplants. You had a heart resting heart rate in the 40s, right? Young athletes. Um, and so it, it's hard to even get controls. And this is why it's this is why science is so messy and to try and use populations to go to individuals, obviously. Um, and 
and I'm not sure why the, we had the problems in this country when it comes to disseminating, figuring out the information. But I think overall, there is a there's an idea how we think the world should be and how we should respond to this virus. And I'm, I'm assuming it's similar to that in, in the UK, that people find information that confirms their bias. And I think, you know, scientists are just as guilty of this as anyone because we're all human. Yeah. And we try to, in science, tell ourselves, don't be biased and to try and have a level of humility, a recognition that you can't know everything. Um, and I don't expect politicians at all to be able to do this because they feed on the fact that there's people want them to do stuff and that's kind of what they do um how do you how do you see things in the uk playing out right now with this COVID? i mean you guys are back to school as well i believe right and i mean you're sort of in a semi-lull with sars cov 2 as far as we know right we are i mean we're seeing cases going up quite rapidly at the moment but um uh, not so much from the hospital point of view we haven't seen because the majority of new cases at the moment are in younger people because they've you know gone out back to work um and people are now returning to their offices so the big spike in cases is happening but it doesn't appear to be at the moment um uh, associated with a, with a major uptick in hospital admissions although they're, they're creeping up and so from tomorrow actually some restrictions are being put back into place so we, we're taking a step backwards with um uh, uh, a cap on public meetings of, of six people. Um, I mean, I think, yes, I think without wanting to get into a sort of wider uh, debate about everything, uh, because we'd be here all day, but I think the UK has been fairly similar to America in, in some respects, um, in that I think uh, our governments have been, a were a bit slow to move initially. And, and I think, um, uh, there have been mixed messages, uh, and the pub. It, there has certainly. I only speak for the UK here, but there's been very unclear messaging from the government, and so I think at this point, I'm really not confident. There's there's a huge appetite for if if there was an announcement that strict lockdown was going to come back in, I, I really I'm not sure the British public are going to go for it like they did um, before when they on the whole they were very good. So I don't know. Uh, at the moment, work feels much more normal. Um, it's pretty much back to normal where I work, uh, you know, in terms of our elective activity as well. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, I think for, for us, work is back to normal as well. In fact, it's been this way for probably two months. Outside the fact that we have far more personal protective equipment we have to wear. We have to wear N95s when we're doing intubating procedures. We have to wear eye shields and stuff, although I think I'm not quite sure why that is, but I think this is one of those recommendations. I mean, we're pretty sure it's not a droplet, um, you know, uh, transmitted disease or virus. It's almost certainly aerosolized. And so there are lots of things we do because, well, we can do it, I guess. <laughs> but um, uh, where do you see your, well, I guess you've been doing YouTube for now for a couple of years. Is that, is that correct? And yeah. Um, why did you decide to go and do it? And what sort of, what has the experience been for you? I, mean, I guess, what have you been most surprised by, by, by this sort of sideline career? Yeah, it's kind of become a, a second career now. Um, I, I, I guess I just kind of always had a bit of an interest in um, making uh, silly sort of movies and things at, at medical school. And I kind of let a, a bunch of my hobbies take a back seat when I was going through cardiology training and everything. 
and then decided that uh, it would be quite fun to start up. And I didn't want to replicate things that were already out there. There are lots of doctors sort of explaining, you know, what is a heart attack? What is diabetes? That kind of thing. So I, I you know, my kind of strap line I tell people is the, these are all pretty useless videos. They're clinically not going to help you, but they're, they're interesting. They're just random uh, medical thing, uh, interesting bits of medical science that I, I quite like. And that was my initial intention. So it was kind of with a emphasis on physiology and things. But then I um, started making a, a kind of separate series, um, looking more at medical statistics and evidence and, and sort of questioning some of our beliefs in, in uh, medicine. And that seems to have been pretty popular. Um, you know, YouTube gets a bit of a bad rep, but there's a nice little corner of kind of educational YouTube where actually people are, are pretty reasonable and interested in quite niche things like this. So it's been a good kind of way to um, get a bit of information out to the public in a, in a kind of funny way. Um, and certainly with COVID, there's, there's been a big interest in, in the channel. So I've seen a, a significant growth in people watching and initially wasn't that keen to do anything to COVID related, but now I, it almost became like I, I felt obliged. Um, but again, I try to take a bit of a different slant on things. So, you know, I think the video that you you first watched that led you to to talk to me today is um, how we really have have allowed our standards to slip in in science in terms of the the papers we're we're looking at during COVID nineteen. Yeah, and I think, uh, well, no question that it's been a, a problem, and I've really I really enjoy the videos, and I I listened to your interview in the BBC, and so it's it. It is, it is taking down some paths I'm sure you never imagined uh, that that would occur, really? that that you're doing something as, as a hobby and for fun. And I would say also YouTube, totally non-medical related, that it has saved me thousands of dollars in repair costs of things that I can fix from dryers to things oh, like yeah, my car. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's my go-to place. Yeah, it's, it's actually amazing. It's incredible, this technology. And you wonder how much as much as you can deride YouTube for all the terrible things around it, it really is a, a fantastic resource. I mean, and something that you've have become just used to, it's sort of like the ability to Google something. I mean, 20 years ago, you had a dispute with someone. I shouldn't say to be a dispute. You'd have a conversation. You're not knowing who did, who is the actor in whatever movie you just had to go to bed and not know what the answer was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And that, you think of it three days later in the shower, like, oh, that's who it was. Now, you know, within seconds, right? It's, uh, it's pretty phenomenal the the information but on the same point that that allow that information can get disseminated bad information can get disseminated just as easily which is again what we're just sort of discussing today that you have this all you can find any sort of information to confirm whatever bias you might have and so it is the rare person who is able to and and I would say with covid I'm the same way that I think you need to have someone who has humility and recognize they don't know everything they can't predict the future as you said earlier, some scientist says, oh, this is going to cause lung scarring or this is going to cause all kinds of problems with hearts, you know, heart disease 10 years from now. There's no way anyone can know that. 10 years from now, we'll know if that was true. Although I think in a lot of these things, and I don't, you can tell me if you agree or not, there are all sorts of things that happen to you to your body throughout your life. You get exposed to pathogens, viruses all the time. And they probably do have some sort of long-term effect that is, we can't see. And so it, it could entirely be possible that when you got chicken pox when you're eight, you know, now it causes some problem when you're 45. We'll never know that. You can never design a study or have any way of figuring that out. I mean, it's entirely possible. And I, and if you were to ask a doctor, can this, can COVID-19, can it cause me 
lungs are like well maybe but we don't know i mean like so many things so many people are using certainty when i think we don't have certainty in this process yes exactly and and which tra which will travel much further online is is the the person who's got that very certain answer so you you know you're absolutely right that there's there's so much if i criticize this the the, the way this cardiac mri paper has been interpreted and then someone just says well are you saying that there's no way covid-19 is going to cause you know heart failure in 10 years time well no i i, I simply don't know that but um my you know, we don't look at every potential uh, question with a 50-50 outcome. It, it's it's <laughs> right. not it's not even odds that that it, it is or it isn't. It's uh, you know we 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 have a, a Bayesian approach. You know, we will have a pretest probability. So we start to look for additional information. So you know, there was a, a study from 2009 which looked at people with a viral infection. Obviously, it wasn't COVID-19. It wasn't SARS-CoV-2 back then. Um, and had pretty similar MRI findings in athletes to the ones we've seen today. Um, in fact, you know, higher rates of these raised inflammatory readings from the, the, the myocardial tissue and even something called late gadolinium enhancement, which is, which is not just an abstract number that's picked up by the machine. It's actually um, holdup of dye that we inject uh, uh, in MRI scans that is suggestive of fibrosis. So this is uh, changing the actual uh, characteristic of, of the tissue itself. And that is thought to be you know, significant. Seeing late gadolinium enhancement is thought to be analogous to seeing you know, scarring on the heart. And we've seen that in um, uh, about a third of the patients in, in the German study, but there was also seen in this 2009 study and what was that virus that they were looking at in 2009? It was the common cold, uh, you know, and the, these <laughs> athletes had had a cold and they had these same MRI findings. And I don't know for sure, but I assume that all of these athletes in 2009 just recovered and, and have been fine since. We're not hearing about vast swathes of people who've got cold induced heart failure in the last 10 years. We don't see you know, long-term influenza-related um, heart failure. There's a possibility it all could contribute, of course, but I think we have to interpret it in, in, the, in the reference frame of, of what we do have evidence for. So if somebody says, uh, but, you know, the, the underlying thing to this is that, of course, with, with COVID-19, there is this undercurrent of, of fear. And so... Um, when confronted with a question like, will this cause X in the future? Instead of giving the honest answer of, uh, I don't know, which doesn't really satisfy anyone, there'll be people who say, yes, this definitely will cause harm. And then that's what uh, uh, goes around the world. Or there'll be people who say, no, there's absolutely no way. I, I, I'm, I'm positive this is going to be completely uh, trivial and meaningless. And that tends to lead you down a, 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 an equally damaging garden path, which is one I don't tend to concentrate on so much because I think there are lots of other people dealing with it who are the kind of real alternative medicine, you know, quacks who, who will just ignore science and, and will just pre present certainty about however they interpret, um, uh, you know, what's going on. Well, I think, you know, the, the answer for us is, is you need to be discerning in, how, in your information recognize that anyone who tells you for sure they know what's going on they don't know because we can't no one can know anything with certainty 
and um, to try and get information from various sources so that you are not continually confirming the bias that you have, um, whatever that might be, whatever side you're on. And of course, here now we're, I'm making it binary, even though we're probably like everything, it's nothing's really truly binary. Um, so where do people find more about you? I mean, obviously your YouTube page, uh, Medlife Crisis, you're on the tw Twitter sphere and where else do you, people need to keep track of you? Those are the two places I tend to spend most of my time, to be honest. I, I've got a, a website, um, but uh, I think you can find me at Twitter uh, most of the time. And um, yeah, the channel, I'm going to keep trying to uh, plod on with it. It's it's a little difficult to, to squeeze in, but um, um, uh, it's certainly something I want to continue because, as you said, it's taken me down some very interesting career avenues, which I never anticipated. Yeah, that's great. And I and just like you, COVID-19 has been uh, a blessing and a curse. It's been one I don't enjoy talking about a lot, it, but it is a, like an intellectual puzzle in trying to figure out how this sort of what's real, how do things are actually going to how things are where we're going to get and how we're going to get there. And so from an academic reason, it's sort of been very interesting that way. And it's certainly far more popular. People listen to those episodes more than any other. Um, but I but I also I pretty much my show is about what I'm interested in talking about and COVID-19 is not what I'm interested in talking about all the time. So I try and, so I try and temper it and not have to do that all the time. But uh, Dr. Rowan Francis from the UK and Medlife Crisis, thank you so much for being on The Paradox. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.